Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Today's program marks the sixth full year, the 40th forum, in which we have tried to examine key issues from an ethical perspective, and that with the help of people who are known to care and who know what they're talking about. Now, that's not to suggest that what is said here is, is beyond challenge, but it does have a way of taking us beyond where we were when we came through the door. Against the background of all of that, I am happy to alert you to the fact that today's speaker is Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. He is a 1938 graduate of Harvard College, summa cum laude. He was professor of history at his alma mater from 1954 to 61. He is the recipient of 14 honorary degrees. I, I have this vision of seeing him wear them all at once, all those hoods. <laughs> he has held many key positions within government, in education, in the world of politics. He was special assistant to President John F. Kennedy from 1961 to 63. Working with Kennedy was the most exhilarating time of my life. Quote, Unquote. He has come of age, you might say, in the world of books, having, at latest count, authored 21 of them. In 1945, he received the Pulitzer Prize in History for his book, The Age of Jackson. In 1965, he received another Pulitzer, this one in biography for his A Thousand Days, John F. Kennedy in the White House. Since 1966, Mr. Schlesinger has been the Albert Schweitzer Professor of Humanities, the City University of New York. In his Decline of Heroes, our speaker wrote, if we are to survive, we must have ideas, vision, courage. These things are rarely produced by committees. Everything that matters in our intellectual and moral life begins with an individual confronting his own mind and conscience in a room by himself. Dr. Schlesinger comes to us prepared to share what he has learned in a room by himself, in the world of historical inquiry, in the world of political give and take, what he perceives to be the dynamics of world power. It's a subject that was appropriate several months ago, sir, when we invited you. It is acutely important given the events of recent days. Professor Schlesinger, we welcome you. Thank you. I would like, in the few minutes we have, to begin by trying to set, for, set the current debate over our foreign policy into some sort of historical perspective. So that debate today uh, is, as it has often been in our past, 
a debate between two conceptions of America. One of these conceptions was that embraced by the Founding Fathers. Founding Fathers had struggled for American independence, for the establishment of a new republic in a dangerous world. They had no illusions about the ease of their task. And they saw their country as one nation among many, subject to the same interests, ambitions, infirmities, delusions as all other nations. As John Adams said, there is no special providence for Americans, and their nature is the same with that of others. Or as Hamilton put it in the, in the Federalist Papers, the great body of political commentary about the um, American Constitution, Hamilton asked, have we not already seen enough of the fallacy and extravagance of those idle theories which have amused us with promises of an exemption from the imperfections, weaknesses, and evils incident to society in every shape. Is it not time, Hamilton said, to awake from the deceitful dream of a golden age and to adopt as a practical maxim for the direction of our political conduct that we, as well as other inhabitants of the globe, are yet remote from the happy empire of perfect wisdom and perfect virtue. This has been a constant strain as we've considered ourselves, was incisively stated by the great, greatest of American philosophers, William James, in the 20th century when he said, angelic impulses and predatory lusts divide our heart exactly as they divide the heart of other countries. That's one conception of America. There's another competing conception, which also has a long resonance in American history, and that is the view that America is different from all other nations, that America is a nation appointed by providence to redeem the fallen world, and thereby qualitatively different from other nations in its superior wisdom, virtue, and innocence. Americans, in this view, are the chosen people bearing the ark of the liberties of the world. America, said Woodrow Wilson, is the only idealistic nation in the world. The heart of this people is pure. It is the great idealistic force of history. Or, as Ronald Reagan has said, I have always believed that this anointed land was set apart, that a divine plan placed this great continent between the oceans to be found by people from every corner of the earth who had a special love of faith and freedom. There's been this perennial strain between these, perennial tension between these two strains, the realist strain on the one hand of the Founding Fathers, the messianic strain on the other, a perennial tension between conflict uh, in the American character, and the continuing debate between those who think America has enough to do to save itself and those who think that America is indeed the happy empire of perfect wisdom and perfect virtue and that its mission is to save the world. In recent years, last five, last five years, we've had seen a mighty comeback of the messianic approach to American foreign policy. President Reagan has eloquently renewed the dream of the United States as the redeemer of the nation, the appointed savior of the world, commissioned by the Almighty to regenerate sinful humanity. Convictions he brings to American foreign policy are twofold. 
that the United States is infinitely virtuous and that the Soviet Union, the great antagonist, is infinitely evil. The Soviet Union, uh, Reagan has said, is the focus of evil in the modern world. Everything follows by deductive logic from this premise. The world struggle, he says, is between right and wrong and good and evil. When evil is loose in the world, we are enjoined by scripture and the Lord Jesus to oppose it with all our might. Let us not delude ourselves, our president has told us. The Soviet Union underlies all the unrest that is going on. If they weren't engaged in this game of dominoes, there wouldn't be any hot spots in the world. Uh, perhaps this is all so, but the idea that if the Soviet Union weren't engaged in this game of dominoes, there wouldn't be any hot spots in the world, expresses, it seems to me, a hopelessly erroneous conception of the way history works. There was unrest in the world long before there was a Bolshevik revolution. There will be unrest in the world long after Gorbachev and his gang are buried and forgotten. If the Soviet Union did not exist, Iraqi and Iranians would still be killing each other. Israeli and Palestinians would still be at each other's throats. There would still be no peace in Cambodia, in Lebanon, in Ireland, or in South Africa. And there would still be civil war in El Salvador. These hot spots were not imported by a diabolical Kremlin into an otherwise harmonious and tranquil planet. The world is already overflowing with intense local antagonisms deeply rooted in historic hatreds, religious fanaticisms, class animosities, tribal feuds, and all long predating the Cold War. Supposing without the Kremlin there would be no hot spots in the world, this gives the devil considerably more than his due. One wonders why we're so eager to build the Russians up. The administration looks at the Soviet Union and sees a great expanding power. Others look and see a rather a weary, dreary country filled with cynicism and corruption, beset by insuperable problems at home and abroad, lurching uncertainly from crisis to crisis. The Soviet leadership, three quarters of a century after the glorious Bolshevik Revolution, cannot provide the people with elementary items of consumer goods. It cannot count on the honesty of its bureaucrats or on the loyalty of its scientists and writers. It confronts difficult ethnic challenges as the non-Russians in the Soviet Union, so miserably underrepresented in the organs of power, begin to outnumber the Russians. Abroad, the Soviet Union faces hostile Chinese on its eastern frontier and restless and unreliable satellites to the west while to the south, the Great Red Army, after seven years, still cannot defeat ragged tribesmen fighting bravely in the hills of Afghanistan. I don't want to overdo the picture of weakness. The Soviet Union remains a powerful state with great and cruel capacity to repress consumption, punish dissent, and, and to build nuclear missiles. But there is enough to the reality of Soviet troubles to lead even the ideologues of American messianism to conceive the Soviet Union as a nation at once so robust that it threatens the world and so frail that a couple of small pushes will shove its ramshackle economy into collapse. The Soviet Union 
if it, of course, is far more under the domination of messianic ideologues than the United States. It too sees the enemy as unchanging and unchangeable, a permanently evil empire vitiated through eternity by the original sin of private property. Each regime reads its adversary in the same way and therefore attributes purpose, premeditation, and plan. Where less besotted analysts would raise a hand for improvisation, accident, chance, ignorance, negligence, and even at times sheer stupidity. We arrive at the predicament excellently described by Henry Kissinger. Superpowers, Kissinger has said, behave like two heavily armed blind men feeling their way around the room, each believing himself in mortal peril from the other whom he assumes to have perfect vision. <laughs> each side should know that frequently uncertainty, compromise, and incoherence are the essence of policymaking. Yet each tends to ascribe to the other a consistency, foresight, and coherence that its own experience belies. Of course, over time, even two blind men can do enormous damage to each other, not to speak of the room. By, by construing every local mess as a, toast, as a test of global will, the messianic approach raises stakes in situations that cannot be easily controlled and threatens to transmute limited into unlimited conflict. Moreover, messianism, if pursued to the end, excludes coexistence. President Reagan instructs us that we must oppose evil with all our might. How can we compromise with evil without losing our immortal soul? Messianism summons the true believer to a jihad, a crusade of extermination against the uh, infidel. The Holy War has always represented a rather drastic approach to human affairs. It seems singularly unpromising in the epoch of nuclear weapons. And then, not only unpromising, but unhelpful, for the American dash into messianism promotes a major Soviet objective, the turning away of Western Europe from the alliance with the United States. It fosters the picture, in the recent words of Jacques Delors, the head of the European Economic Community, of an increasingly ideological and aggressive American administration that carries a Bible in one hand and a revolver in the other. This impression doubtless confirmed by recent words and actions on the part of our government. For President Reagan is setting out on what sounds like a program of world revolution. We not, must not break faith, he has said, with those who are risking their lives on every continent from Afghanistan to Nicaragua to defy Soviet-supported aggression. America, in the president's view, is morally bound to help freedom fighters, as he calls them, in the third world, whether or not vital American interests are involved. Reagan publicists have elevated this effort into what is now known as the Reagan Doctrine. We Americans have a traditional weakness for doctrine with a capital D as if declarations by themselves achieve world-shaking results. As Herbert Crowley wrote three quarters of a century ago in The Promise of American Life, the American habit, said Crowley, is to proclaim doctrines 
without considering either the implications, the machinery necessary to carry them out, or the weight of the resulting responsibility. We tried something like the Reagan Doctrine earlier in the Cold War. The Truman Doctrine of 1947 was limited to the containment of Soviet expansion. It did not contemplate the overthrow of existing communist regimes. Such restraint aroused conservative ire in the late 1940s, early 50s. The Republican platform of 1952 denounced the containment policy as negative, futile, and immoral. John Foster Dulles, the more venerable among us may still recall, John Foster Dulles called for a bold new policy of liberation. The mere statement by the United States, Dulles said, that it wants and expects liberation to occur would change in an electrifying way the mood of the captive peoples. The Eisenhower administration came into office with Dulles as Secretary of State and with, under the pledge to roll back Soviet power. But of course, it did nothing at all in the face of anti-Soviet upheavals in East Germany in 1953 and Hungary in 1956 and talk of liberation and rollback ended for nearly 30 years. The Reagan Doctrine is a revival of Dulles's liberation policy, though one prudently confined thus far to the Third World. But even in the Third World, the Reagan Doctrine will require formidable machinery and will entail grave responsibility. Consider our problems in Central America. Unquestionably, we do face tough situations. For a century, American business has dominated, developed, and deformed Central America, leaving an explosive contrast between poverty and oligarchy. A generation ago, the Alliance for Progress was set up by President Kennedy to deal with these questions of poverty and oligarchy through programs of economic assistance and social change. But the Alliance lost its character and abandoned his concern with social reform after Kennedy's death. When revolution predictably burst out in Central America in the late 1970s, the Messianists rejected the notion of local origins for it and decreed that the Russians were back at their old game of domino. We don't stop to act Marxist, if we don't act to stop Marxism in Central America, the argument now runs, dominoes will topple and the Soviet Union will establish a bridgehead in the center of the Western Hemisphere. Our credibility would collapse, President Reagan has said, our alliances would crumble, and the safety of our homeland would be in jeopardy. Other views are possible. A Marxist-Leninist Nicaragua would be a problem, though as Senator Fulbright wisely said about Cuba in 1961, it would be a thorn in our side, not a dagger in our heart. The Soviet Union obviously rejoices in our Central American discomfiture. But the administration has never offered a rigorous analysis as to how Moscow can exploit the situation to its strategic benefit. The Russians know they cannot install missile bases in the Western Hemisphere in 1986 any more than they could in 1962. As for economic assistance to Nicaragua, why, in the words of no Latin American maxim, why would Moscow fatten a lamb 
in the jaws of a lion. The Kremlin will do its best to keep revolutionary, the revolutionary pot boiling on a low-cost, low-risk basis, but it will not invest much in the way of arms, money, or prestige, because it knows how hopelessly vulnerable such an investment uh, would be. The historian is bound to note that unilateral military action by the United States in Latin America is nearly always a mistake. In the 1980s, the policy we're, we are pursuing today will probably do more to stimulate than to retard the spread of Marxism. If a Marxist Nicaragua, a country with a population of 2.9 million people, or El Salvador, population 4.5 million, if is a threat to the hemisphere, they, these countries would be much more dire threats to Mexico, to Costa Rica, to Panama, to Venezuela, to Colombia, than to the United States. The Latin American nations are a good deal more vulnerable politically, economically, and militarily than the United States. They are closer to the scene and know a good deal more about it, and their leaders are just as determined as the United States is on their behalf to resist the communization of their countries. When the people on the spot don't see the threat as apocalyptically as Washington does, only messianic ideologues can conclude with divine assurance that they are wrong and we are right. The sensible course is surely to work with the Latin Americans who are more threatened than we are, who know the territory far better than we do, and without whose support we cannot gain our objective. The better course is the one they propose, not the militarization of Central America, but its demilitarization with the removal of all foreign military uh, personnel and the cessation of the fighting. In a rebellion, as in a novel, said Alexis de Tocqueville, the most difficult part to invent is the end. One wonders if Reaganites, as they set out under the banner of the Reagan Doctrine on the course of world revolution, ever put to themselves the simple question, what happens next? What happens if cheers from the sidelines and if CIA subsidy are not enough to put our freedom fighters over the top? Now, when we create forces in other lands, as we've created the Contra, wholly owned subsidiary of the CIA, when we exhort them to go into combat, when we arouse their expectations of our support, do we then wash our hands of them if they cannot make it on their own? Of course, we have done that in the past. We have stimulated uh, people and armed them and organized them. We did it in Indonesia in 1958 with the Sumatrans. We did it with the Miao and the Montagnard tribesmen in Vietnam in the 1960s. We did it with the Kurds in 1972, all flung into combat at our urging and then cruelly abandoned by us uh, to their fate. These were hardly our finest hours. Yet, when our clients flop, does the pledge to keep faith with freedom fighters President Reagan's pledge not obligate us to send in American boys to finish the job. The Reagan doctrine must ineluctably end either in cynicism, cynical betrayal, or in world crusade. Let us reflect on what we did this week, Libya. 
to Libya and how we did it. I know that most Americans, sharing the President's frustrations over the infamous actions of Gaddafi in support of terrorism, applaud the sneak attack on, on Libya. But the purpose of foreign policy is not to, to gratify our emotions. The purpose of foreign policy is to produce real effects in the real world. The issue we must consider when we assess our action in Libya is not the amount of gratification it gives us, but what the results are going to be. We cannot yet know uh, the ultimate outcome. We know that Gaddafi survives uh, and that he will, was faced with the death of his daughter, the wounding of his two sons, he will undoubtedly strike again. Then the question arises, what happens next? He strikes again, what do we do? We strike again, try to kill the rest of his family. How long does this go on? The raid on Libya is not going to stop terrorism. It's going to accelerate and intensify terrorism. Moreover, <laughs> if Libya were to sink below the waters of the Mediterranean tomorrow, terrorism would continue, partly because Syria and Iran have done much more, do much more than Libya to nurture and protect terrorists. And they are not touched by anything we're doing in Libya. And they know we're unlikely to do anything to them. And most fundamentally, of course, because the roots of terrorism lie deep in religious and political hatred uh, through the Middle East. We also know that most of our European allies who are more exposed to terrorism than we are think we have gone about it the wrong way and that the likely result will be an intensification of terrorism against European targets. Libya, Gaddafi might try something in the United States, but he lacks the personnel, the contacts, the safe houses, the facilities to do it here. He has these in Europe. That is why there's a certain lack of enthusiasm Europe about an American action is going to rebound, not against the United States, but against uh, them. And we can surmise how more and more of the rest of the world is bound to see the United States as a great international bully, braving, bravely knocking off midget states that arouse our displeasure, and doing it as in Grenada and in Libya through the device of sneak attacks. This was a device to which we objected when the Japanese employed it against us at Pearl Harbor. Why is a sneak attack so much more acceptable when we do it ourselves? At least the Japanese were picking on someone their own size. There is a Hollywood quality, it seems to me, about the bellicosity of the Reagan administration, as if war were not a grim reality to them, but rather a cinematic exercise where after the day's shooting, you go home, have a swim and a drink, and life goes on. <laughs> no one can question the President Reagan's personal courage, yet one wonders whether he really understands what war is about. After all, he is the only president of military age during the Second World War who saw no service overseas. Odd business this, the 
manipulation of patriotism. Ask most Americans who is the greater patriot, Ronald Reagan or George McGovern, and they'll mostly say, Ronald Reagan, of course. But when the chips were down for this country, George McGovern was a bomber pilot who flew 35 missions, brought in planes twice riddled with shrapnel, and won a distinguished flying cross. While Reagan fought the Second World War on the film lots of Hollywood, sleeping in his own bed every night. This example has infected his administration. Andrew Jacobs, an Indiana congressman who served on, as a Marine in Korea, has defined what he calls Reagan's war wimps. A war wimp is one is all, who is all too willing to send others to war, but never gets around to going to war himself. Reagan administration is filled with war wimps. Men like Assistant Secretary of Defense Richard Pearl, Secretary of the Navy John Lehman, White House Assistant Pat Buchanan, fire eaters who are hot for military action today, but evaded it themselves when they were of draft age. President Reagan invoked Rambo the other day. This is another Hollywood illusion. Sylvester Stallone, so fearless on the screen, was an athletic coach at a girls' school in Switzerland during those grim days when other stalwart young Americans of his age were dying in Vietnam. There's something ultimately unattractive about the brand of patriotism that consists of sending young men into combat to kill and die after you have avoided combat yourself. If the Reagan doctrine ends in Rambo-like crusading, what happens to the United States itself? Will the American people tolerate the commitment of our sons and husbands to costly and mysterious third world wars remote from direct American interests? What happens to the American Constitution process? The idea that the United States is the guardian of freedom everywhere on the planet, that it must be forever ready to intervene unilaterally in the affairs of other states and to dispatch armed forces at will to the ends of the world, this idea calls for an unprecedented concentration of authority, secrecy, and discretion in the presidency. It is a policy that will devour constitutional limitation and reduce Congress to impotence. After all, the Constitution, look it up, Article 1, Section 8, gives Congress the exclusive power to declare war. But the Reagan administration has arrogated to itself the power to launch sneak attacks on small nations Grenada yesterday, Libya today, God knows where tomorrow, without any form of congressional authorization or even consultation. Of course, the president claims the authority of self-defense, but self-defense is an infinitely elastic doctrine. By self-defense, the founding fathers in the Constitutional Convention meant the need to repel sudden invasions. But we now stretch the doctrine of self-defense to cover anything we want. Nor is this a new issue in American history. Let me recall to you the still relevant words of Abraham Lincoln when he was a congressman from Illinois in 1848. And his law partner wrote him a letter saying that uh, the self-defense uh, was a perfect justification for uh, unilateral action by the president, which Lincoln replied, allow the president to invade a neighboring nation whenever he shall deem it necessary to repel an invasion, 
and you allow him to do so. Therefore, whenever he may choose to say, he deems it necessary for such purpose. And you allow him that, said Lincoln, you allow him to make war at pleasure. Study to see if you can fix any limit to his power in this respect. If today, Lincoln continued, he should choose to say he thinks it necessary to invade Canada to prevent the British from invading us, how could you stop him? You may say to him, I see no probability of the British invading us, but he will say to you, be silent. I see it. You don't. <laughs> the provision of the Constitution, said Lincoln, giving the war-making power to Congress was dictated by the following reasons. Kings had always been involving and impoverishing their people in wars. This, the Constitutional Convention understood to be the most oppressive of all kingly oppressions, and they resolved to so frame the Constitution that no one man should hold the power of bringing this oppression upon us. But your view, said Lincoln, places our president where kings have always stood. And this is the view the Reagan doctrine carries with it, the revival of the imperial presidency where one man, contrary to the provisions of the Constitution, the intentions of the founding, the founding fathers, commands, controls the power uh, to commit America to war. Carried very far, the Reagan doctrine would involve the United States' endless foreign exertion, chronic warfare, burgeoning expense, and the militarization of American life. If America, as John Quincy Adams presciently said, Long ago, if America were to become involved in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom, then, Adams said, the fundamental maxims of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. She might become the dictator of the world. She would no longer be, America would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. I think this messianic ideology is in the end out of character for America. Dogma does the Republic grievous damage, above all in foreign affairs. In thinking about international relations, Americans would do well to sober up from the messianic binge and return to the cold gray realism of the founding fathers, men who well understood the role of interest and force in a dangerous world and thought that saving America was enough without trying to save all humanity as well. Founding fathers recognized that nations like people are subject to illusions of infallibility. Seeking always for checks on power, they emphasized in the 63rd Federalist that, in their words, attention to the judgment of other nations is important to the American government for two reasons. One, Federalist Papers says, is that independently of the merits of any particular plan or measure, it is desirable on various accounts that it should appear to other nations as the offspring of a wise and honorable policy. The second is that in doubtful cases, particularly where the national councils may be warped by some strong passion or momentary interest, the presumed or known opinion of the impartial world may be the best guide that can be followed. I think reflect on this when you read about European reaction to our Libyan venture. 
What has not America lost, the Federalist Papers says, by her want of character with foreign nations? And how many errors and follies would she have avoided if the justice and propriety of her measures had in every instance been previously tried by the light in which they would probably appear to the unbiased part of mankind? Wise words then, wise words now. Great as we are in the United States, we are not yet the happy empire of perfect wisdom and perfect virtue. And we still had better begin by saving ourselves before we set out to save the world. Let us cease this new self-appointed role as humanity's judge, jury, and executioner. The great theologian Reinhold Niebuhr brought the true ethical perspective to bear when he warned 30 years ago against the deep layer of messianic consciousness in the mind of America. Nations, Niebuhr said, like in, as individuals who are completely innocent in their own esteem are insufferable uh, in their human contact. Nations must never forget, Reinhold Niebuhr said, the depth of evil to which individuals and communities may sink when they try to play the role of God in history. We must remember that when the United States has really exerted leadership in the world, it has done so not by throwing our weight around, playing, playing the bully on the block, launching sneak attacks on small countries, and telling our friends and allies that we know better than they do what their own interests are. Historically, the United States has exerted influence in the world when leaders like Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy have set forth a vision and a hope that appeal to plain people in every continent. We have succeeded not through the force of our arms, but through the splendor of our ideal. It is time to leave off this new role of braggart and bully, to return to our democratic and humane ideals, to our best traditions, and to our best self. Thank you.
We have no official co-sponsor today in the form of a corporation or a foundation, but it does give me an opportunity to say thank you to the, all of you who gift large, medium, and small help make these forums happen. What you provide matters. Sir, I wonder if you'd re return to the podium, and while the other questions are being sorted, let me pose uh, one or two that I've uh, prepared. President Kennedy, you quoted him as saying, uh, asking, why, when America was a young nation of four million people, did we have so many abler people than we have today? Uh, <laughs> I'd be interested in your response to that, his and yours, perhaps the same, perhaps it is. It's a question that continues to puzzle historians, and it is when you look back at the Constitutional Convention and the kind of leadership we had in the, in the United States in the first two decades of our existence, it is a puzzling thing. One thing may have been that there are so few outlets for leadership. This was at a time when uh, business had not assumed the importance of the economy that it did later, and when, uh, when public service, when people of ability, therefore, were, were more tempted to, to enter law, public service, uh, than they were when moral alternatives were open to, open to them at a later time. This is a comment of yours that I'd like to hear you elaborate on. History shows, too, that when a society in flight from hero worship decides to do without great men at all, it gets into troubles of its own. I'd like to hear you talk a bit about heroes and their, uh, the pluses and the minuses of the same. Well, I think that, the, that uh, hero worship uh, can be can go too far, because no man is no human being infallible, and uh, one can never safely propose total trust in any uh, individual or indeed in any institution. Uh, but I think the heroes do play a role for us all as embodying possibilities, embodying ideals, and thereby um, Emerson said, we must have great men so that we can have greater men. Uh, heroes do represent to us what uh, human beings uh, are capable of, as the greatest of them all, Jesus Christ did. That is why, though, the capitulation to heroes is always at stake. Uh, the notion of rejection of them uh, has, uh, causes its own problems. Thank you. This is the first question from the audience itself. I'll raise my voice a little bit. I gather that the mic for this uh, room is not live. How do you explain the fact that 77% of Americans have reported that they are in favor of President Reagan's decision about, the, uh, uh, about Libya? Well, I think it's predictable that this should be so. Uh, the American tendency, and it's probably a healthy one, is always to rally around the flag times of military action. I can remember, I can remember when uh, after the, the, 25 years ago uh, was the day of the Bay of Pig, celebrated and deplorable episode in American history, which I had some involvement. And I remember a few 
weeks after the Bay of, two days after the Bay of Pigs, going into President Kennedy's office, and he showed through over with a look of disgust at his face a new Gallup poll. To take a look at that. And the Gallup poll showed that his popularity had, had risen sharply after the Bay of Pigs. He said, look at that. He said, the worse we do, the more popular we get. <laughs> right? I think the initial reaction of rally around the flag is a perfectly understandable one. I think that, that uh, but as Martin Van Buren used to say, the sober second thoughts of the American people are never wrong and always efficient. Uh, one question from the audience. How would you describe the Kennedy presidency in historical perspective? In 30 seconds or less. <laughs> Well, I think the Kennedy presidency will be recalled as a time of, of <coughs> great possibility in American life. Kennedy believed that there were <coughs> great reserves of idealism in the American people, uh, which could be harnessed for good purposes at home and at abroad, and his effort as presidency and in the presidency. And as we know, he only had those thousand days to do what could be done to release the generous side of the American spirit. You spoke during the latter part of your address about Reinhold Niebuhr, and there's a question here about him. He's been called probably the most influential single mind in the development of American attitudes which combine moral purpose with a sense of political reality. Tell us of your friendship with Reinhold Niebuhr. What was he like? What did he contribute to American character? Reinhold Niebuhr was very, one, one of the most extraordinary men I've ever known, and uh, we became friends after the war and remained close until his death in the early 1970s. He had great influence on me and many people in my generation because of the doctrines of, of Christian realism he espoused. We'd been brought up to, before the Second World War, I guess, to assume the perfectibility of man and to have a rather benign view of human nature. And the experiences of the war uh, were hard to reconcile uh, with those benign theories. I mean, it's hard to explain Hitler and Stalin in terms of the innate goodness of man. And uh, reading Reinhold Niebuhr and, and this extraordinary uh, demonstration of the continuing rele relevance of the Augustinian insights into the mixed character of human nature, uh, I began, it was a great revelation for me, and it made me understand history and human nature a good deal better than I did. At the same time, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr never permitted his awareness of human frailty, you know, the human capacity uh, for evil to sever the nerve of action. He felt you had to act on the best evidence you have for the things considered uh, best. And uh, he maintained that delicate balance uh, between a sense of the human limitation, which meant that you never could act with total certitude, but nonetheless the responsibility to act. He always felt that Lincoln embodied that more than, than almost anyone in history. And one remembers Niebuhr, I suppose, most of all for that great statement of, 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 of his, that man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, and man's inclination toward injustice makes democracy necessary.
another question from the audience. Professor Schlesinger, historians and writers frequently compare the 1980s with past eras, such as Imperial Rome, the 14th century, the 1920s. While such comparisons are always vague and problematic, what period in history reminds you most of current time? I think the 1980s are, for me, quite reminiscent of the 1950s and of the 1920s and of the 1890s. We go, the American public affairs goes, operates, runs on a cyclical pattern. We go through times of sort of dominated by public purpose, which run on until people get exhausted by the process, disillusioned by the results, and we go into times dominated by private interest. And the 20s, the 50s, and the 80s are all times dominated by private interest rather than by, by public purpose. Times of private interest run on for a while until people uh, get frustrated by the mean and narrow horizons of life, the notion that the pursuit of the past buck will solve all our problems. After a time, people begin to get tired of that, begin to wonder whether, and to ask, not what their government can do for them, but what they can do for their government. And uh, I think that the, the, we go through, as I say, these periods of, of, uh, of hedonism, of self-centeredness, of private interest, and then we go into a period of action, passion, idealism, reform, and they're 30-year intervals. Because that's, that's, as the periods of conservative restoration, the 80s, 50s, 20s, and so on, Similarly, the periods of forward movement, Theodore Roosevelt in 1901, Franklin Roosevelt in 1933, John Kennedy in 1961. So if this rhythm holds, it means that sometime around year 1990, we are going to see a marked shift in the direction and character of American policy and a movement away from greed as the mainspring of our life and back to some larger conception of American possibility. said feeds into a question that's come forward. The political power of conservatives seems to be diminishing. Uh, is there a new liberalism on the horizon, and what will it look like? Well, I, I, for the reasons just set forth, I think that yeah. the cyclical pattern, and I, the cyclical pattern is, as I say, a 30-year cycle, which is obviously a generational cycle. People are formed uh, politically more or less by the ideals that are dominant at the time when they come to political consciousness. Thus, the generation whose ideals were set by Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, uh, the young people of that time, like Franklin Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt, Harry Truman, uh, had their ideals formed uh, in that way. And then when they reached their maturity, they produced the New Deal and the Fair Deal, and a new generation uh, came to political uh, consciousness at a time when Franklin Roosevelt was setting the ideals of the nation. People like John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, they too, 30 years later, uh, when they came in, into office, uh, carried out the great uh, new frontier and the great society. And similarly, uh, John Kennedy's ideals touched a new generation of America. That generation time is presumably will come in the 1990s. But I do not despair of the future of America. <laughs> Here's a 
question that fits in, perhaps. Or where would we be now had John Kennedy not been assassinated? Well, it's very hard to predict what the presidents would have done had the head presidents about problems that perhaps assume new shape after their time. Hard enough to predict what living presidents are going to do about it. <laughs> but I do think that we would not have gotten, uh, we would not have Americanized the war in Vietnam. We would not have sent in combat, the combat units. I think Kennedy's plan, which was in this, as we found in the Pentagon Papers, was to withdraw all American advisors from Vietnam in 1945. And I think he would have, his plan was to concentrate in his second term on the domestic problems of poverty and racial justice. And had he been able to do that, I think he might have had a more tranquil country in the 1960s. Question from the audience. Granted that a sneak attack is not the proper way of dealing with terrorists such as Gaddafi, how should we respond? That you spoke to that in part, perhaps you'd like to speak again. Yeah, sure I would, because I do, it's a very serious question. And one can understand uh, the frustration that President Reagan has felt and the frustration, God knows, that the Europeans um, are much more in the line of action have felt. And there is, it's a question to which there is no easy answer. If the removal of Gaddafi were the answer to it, uh, there are better ways, I believe, to have gone about it uh, than the way we have chosen. The only effective way, because our policy hasn't even removed Gaddafi, would be to hope it would be to an internal insurrection. Now, Gaddafi has not been a popular figure in Libya. He's run a very tough regime. He's had constant trouble with the military. There have been several coup attempts in recent years. Only a few months ago, he executed two leading figures in the, in, in the army, accusing them of plotting against him. Uh, fall in oil prices is increasing uh, disaffection in uh, Libya, had we pursued a policy of blockade, and we might have gotten our European allies to go along with that, that might well have created conditions inside Libya which would provoke the army uh, to throw out Gaddafi and to take over. But the one thing we know about aerial bombing, and it's been our invariable historical experience, it was true in the Second World War, it was true in Vietnam, is that bombing solidifies a population uh, behind its government. We always suppose that the bomb, Lyndon Johnson always said, bomb the people in North Vietnam enough and they'll, uh, they'll uh, cry uncle. And if Hitler believed you bomb London enough and they'll cry uncle. But what it, or we believe some of our Air Force people bomb Germany enough and they'll cry uncle. But what bombing does is make people, on the one hand, mad as hell against they on the other hand, more dependent on the government uh, for the services and so on, which are going to keep them alive. So that we have no doubt solidified uh, Libyan opinion behind Gaddafi, just as we solidified the Arab world, most of whom dislike and distrust Gaddafi, uh, behind it. So I think that, the, the, that if Gaddafi were the problem of terrorism, uh, that we've much probably uh, reduced the chance of internal. But you have to live with, I mean, the IRA has been killing people in London throughout England for many years. This is not that Margaret Thatcher to bomb Northern Ireland. I mean, there, there, are, there are ways of dealing with it, but there is no quick fix on this problem. And there's no, the, the, the Israel thought 
made this advance into Lebanon. It was going to do a once and for all job in Lebanon and wreck the PLO and end, end terrorism. But we all know what's happened. Everything has gotten worse in Lebanon since the Israeli raid of a year ago. And I believe that the destabilizing effects of this are going to be comparable and that, uh, to the destabilizing effects of Israeli raid. There is no quick answer to a very serious troubling problem. Are there any legitimate parallels between the present-day Contra operations and the Bay of Pigs operation 25 years ago? They seem to be Contras in the Bay of Pigs. And I feel as if I were watching a slow-motion reenactment of the Bay of Pigs when I read this Contra thing. Like the Cuban Expeditionary Force of 1961, the Contras are a creation of the uh, CIA, uh, organized, armed by the CIA. As in 1961, the CIA told, told President Kennedy that the people of Cuba couldn't wait to overthrow Castro and would rise against him as soon as the landings took place. In the same way, the CIA is telling us that the people of Nicaragua hate the Sandinistas and will rise as soon as the Contras begin to have some success. We are also up many similarities, including what happens to the exiled groups, because the CIA also will say that the national feelings of the Cubans in 61 or the Nicaraguans in 86 are outraged by the fact they are under regimes who give their loyalty to the Soviet Union. Yet the CIA people don't like independent national-minded nationalists either. They don't want, they, in, the, in the Cuban case, they discriminated against uh, the leaders, the anti-Castro leaders, who wouldn't take CIA bidding, orders. They're doing the same thing here. People like uh, Eden Pastor and Edgar Camaro, who are anti-Sandinista leaders, have been cut out by the CIA because they're too troublesome. They have ideas of their own. The CIA doesn't want leaders in there, it wants agents. And uh, every, any crowd that comes back as, and triumphs as a result of the CIA isn't going to be very popular in its homeland. I think the parallels between uh, the, I mean, it was bad enough to do the Bay of Pigs in the first place, but to repeat it 25 years later is inexcusable. You quoted the talk as saying, as with the novel, the most difficult part to invent is the end. I don't know that it's difficult, but it's frustrating to come to the end of this session because there's so much more we'd like to ask and to hear you respond. Just in closing, I would beg you to say whether you're hopeful or pessimistic or both about our future as a nation and world community. Well, I had to cut out a lot of in my, what I was originally going to say about but the supreme question of all, which is, of course, nuclear control of nuclear weapons, because if we don't do that, we aren't going to have a future. But I would say that, in general, I'm a, a short-term pessimist, long-term optimist.